My name is Jim Fleming, and this is Our Sunday School. Our Sunday School is part of Stewart Heights Baptist Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee. To prepare for this lesson, please go to OurSundaySchool.com for a copy of today's handout. Now, let's get to this week's lesson. Well, good morning, and welcome to Our Sunday School. I'm glad you guys are with us this morning. Uh, if you passed by the handout this morning and were shocked, that's okay, because we've only got one piece of paper for the handout, and that's on both sides, so we're not getting crazy crazy, but it is just one piece of paper this morning. I am going to, Lord willing, make up for it with the next handout, which is already out as well. Uh, it should be our December 19th, January 9th, and January 16th handout, so we'll, that's your handout for the next month or so. Uh, but uh, welcome to those of you that are online as well, uh, Ron and Nancy and Amy, so glad you guys are with us this morning. And uh, to those of you in the room, thanks for being here. I appreciate it. So let's take a look at our, uh, so we're in Mark chapter 14 today. Uh, and for those of you in the room, you can see that there's more stuff up here than normal. Uh, and that's on purpose. I, I try to do this every once in a while, kind of show you some of the sausage making process. But... Uh, but I think that might help you see kind of my thought process and where we're moving through some of this. So we've got our question that we'll start with uh, each week is what is God doing in you through his word from the portion of Mark we've studied so far? So what is God doing in you through his word from the portion of Mark we've studied so far? And just because I feel like I need to tell on him, uh, Amy, he's here on time. So there you go. <laughs> so well done, young man. <laughs> so what's God doing in you through his word from the portion of Mark we've studied so far? Your mom says thanks, so there you go. <laughs> this is what I learned, is the two immutable facts from growing up in a small town. Um, somebody's going to tell your parents, and somebody's always watching. <laughs> All right, let's take a look at our text this morning. So this is Mark chapter 14. We'll, we'll pick up reading um, halfway through Mark 14 in verse 32. Read down through 72. And then come back and look at 51 and 52. So lots of twos today. So Mark chapter 14. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. 
And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough, the hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And immediately while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of them who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. And they left Jesus to the high priest. And all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none, for many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard this blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, Prophesy! And the guards received him with blows. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came, and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with the Nazarene, Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out to the gateway, and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began to say to the bystanders, This man is one of them. But again he had denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. Mark 14. So at the top of my two pages of notes this morning, I have uh, six questions. And you've probably heard this list of six questions many times in your life. Uh, who, what, where, when, why, and how. Right. And whenever you're looking at a text of scripture, it is helpful to ask this series of questions so we know who we are talking about, what they are doing, where they are, when is it occurring, why is it happening, and how did this all come about. And I would argue that four of those six are shockingly simple to know from today's text. So we know what's going on, we know where it's going on, we know when it's going on, and we know how it went down. 
But the who and the why can drive you up the wall. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Now, I told my good friend um, Josh Landers that I would not share the piece of information that I desperately want to share with you this morning until the very last week of our series in Mark, and I'm not going to. But when I share it, know that this was one of the times that I was most tempted to share it. Some of you will remember this. So let's take a look at our text this week. Uh, If you look at the handout, are there any literary or structural observations? Uh, My comment here is Mark appears to go down a rabbit trail. And whether that offends you or intrigues you, I hope you have some response. So let's look at verse 51. We'll read through the text again, just 51 and 52. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. So let's ask a structural question first. Do we have to have verses 51 and 52 for the narrative and the movement of the story to make sense? Because at the end of verse 50, they all left him and fled, right? And then what do we have in 51 and 52, Dave? What did Margie say? Margie said it's just an example. It's an example. There you go. Right. There you go. So do you guys remember the circle? And I should have added this to the PowerPoint this morning, and I forgot. There's a circle that I show sometimes. So Jesus and the inner circle, Peter, James, and John, the 12, the 70, the others, the crowd, right? Well, this is actually an example of somebody that wasn't in the 12 that might have been in the 70, maybe, maybe not, but was definitely somebody who would have called themselves or been described as a follower because they are described as a follower, right? So let's, let's pick sides real quick. So is this person with Jesus or against Jesus? With, right? Text is pretty clear. We're on the with side. We have two evidences of this. One, the text explicitly says followed. And two, he was, what happened with the, uh, the people who came out to seize Jesus? They got him, right? They got him too. So this, the, the pro, the explicit statement, as well as the evidence from the response of those uh, around him. So let's look at the, the words here for just a second. So as in a young man... Now, right after this word for young man in Greek, there is an indefinite pronoun. And these aren't always necessary. But when they are included, it's just one further step that the author was taking to be clear that that this is somebody specific, but I'm going to a little extra lengths to not say who this is. This is the, we're putting more kind of grammatical cover over this. So this word is, uh, a young man followed him. So who's the him here? We assume this is Jesus, right? There's no other significant uh, person in the story other than Judas. So a young man followed. This word followed is uh, in the imperfect tense, which is how we know that he was not just a, you can just get up that night and decide to start following. He'd been following Jesus for a little while. This is repeated action in the past. This word shows up one other time in Mark's gospel, in Mark 5, 37. 
And this is where Jesus said, and the text says, and he allowed, Jesus allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. And this is when he was going to heal uh, Jairus' daughter. So this is just a normal word for follow. There's nothing overly special about this particular word. So this certain man is following him. And then the text, and if, if you read this in English and you go, that seems weird, good. You should have that response because it's even weirder in Greek. So let's take a look at this for a second. Now, if you're familiar with the structure of these handouts, the handouts show the English word and then the Greek word that describes the English word right after in brackets. And what do you see in brackets after with nothing but a? Just linen cloth, right? Yeah, because yeah, there's, there's not really a, a set of Greek words that describe with nothing but a. Um, here's one way to read it in, uh, if you were just doing a, a straight uh, translation. So, and uh, young man a followed him, uh, linen cloth clothed uh, upon nudity. It seems like that's all he had on then, right? Yes. So this is a really good example of English translators trying to help us out, and they call it smoothing out the, the lumpiness of another language. Uh, most of you know that I like mixed martial arts. Uh, there were fights last night, and uh, for several of the fighters, they spoke a different language than English. So in the uh, interview, because I don't you know, why else would you not want to interview someone who just got hit repeatedly in the head, right? Um, in the interview, right after the fight is over with the winner, many times there will be a translator. And my favorite translator is from Brazil, and he actually doesn't translate very often anymore. But the fighters would speak, you know, there's a question asked by the interviewer, the fighters would speak for 30 or 40 seconds, right? There's obviously a tremendous amount that's being communicated. And the translator would say, what he basically said was that he's very happy to be here. Like, well, I, like, I don't know Portuguese, but I think there was more to it than just that, right? And then there are times where the speaker, the fighter, will say just a few words, and the translator goes on and on and on because there's a complexity and depth to it that needs to be unpacked and explained. This is that second category where you need a little bit more just to make the English sentence not grammatically correct, uh, but closer to grammatically correct. All right, so let's look at the next little word here. Uh, <clears throat> young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth. All right. So how many of you wear linen? Uh, that could get me in trouble. Um, let me ask this. Is linen in today's society associated with higher levels of income or lower levels of income? Like, higher, right? Yes. It, it was then as well, right? Now, this did not necessarily mean this person was from the richest family in Jerusalem, but th there, was some, there was some association with money here. Okay. Now, so the next thing you might be thinking, like, with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. So where are we? In, in the Garden of Gethsemane, right? 
So there's olive trees around. What, what's the nearest city? Jerusalem, like shockingly near, right? Would it make sense that you would be wandering around a very long distance from home wearing nothing but, and you could translate this word uh, a chemise or a shirt. Uh, this would be an inner garment. This is not like your outer coat. Does it make sense that you'd be wandering far from home wearing just that? No. It, it actually doesn't make sense you'd be wandering anywhere from home wearing just that. But what's that? Unless it's all you had, right? And if it's all you had was something crazy expensive, that's a bit of a disconnect, right? Good. So we've got this expensive garment. Um, this word shows up in the Gospels, in uh, Matthew and Luke. Every time it shows up in Matthew and Luke, this is describing the burial cloth that Joseph wraps the body of Jesus in. So we know he was a rich man because he had his own tomb ready to go. This was unusual. She were wealthy. So this, this word is actually, I think it's interesting, it's only used twice in the New Testament. It's once for the stuff that wraps Jesus and once for the stuff that wraps this. Uh, one of my commentaries said it was the world's first documented streaker, which is a bit of a stretch, but okay, yeah. I thought you would laugh at that, but you didn't. All right, um, so with nothing but a linen cloth. Now, there's another word for clothing earlier in Mark chapter 10, verse 50. And this is the um, this is uh, blind Bartimaeus when when Jesus is calling blind Bartimaeus in verse fifty it says and throwing off his cloak he sprang up and came to Jesus this does not mean Bartimaeus got naked and then ran to Jesus the cloak was the outer garment here so a huge massive both cultural and physical difference between what Bartimaeus is doing and what this certain young man is doing. So he's got nothing but a linen cloth about, um, this is like thrown around. You, you, could, uh, you could translate this word clothed, if you would, parabolo, uh, around his body. And the word body is just the word for nudity, which is implying that there's nothing else going on that he's wearing. So what do they do to him? Well, they continue to obey Judas. Right? They seized him. They curtailed him. They grabbed him with force. In verse 52, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. So the word for left is a word for abandonment. It's a word for you leave and you don't come back. It's used three other times in Mark's gospel. Uh, once in Mark 10, verse 7, when Jesus is talking about but let a man leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. They'll become one flesh. So this is the idea like we're, we're not going to stay here. We're going to go there and we're not coming back here. Like that's not the point. And then there's uh, the word is used twice in chapter 12, uh, verse 19 and verse 21, uh, both times to describe a, uh, a, a wife that has been widowed because her husband has left, he is no longer alive, and he is not coming back to perform uh, the role of a husband. So he, this is not a like, well, I reluct, no, 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 like I, I've left it, and I'm not coming back for it, is the context here, right? So he leaves the linen cloth and ran away naked. 
All right, so let's look at these words for ran away for just a second. In Mark 5, verse 14, it's the first time we see the word run. And this is when Jesus heals the, uh, what he's sometimes referred to as the maniac of Gadara. Uh, in verse 14, and the, the people who saw this, the herdsmen fled and told it in the city and the country. Right? So you just lost all of your sheep, and they are running away. Uh, Mark 13, verse 14 is the next time it shows up. And this is when Jesus is giving these warnings to the disciples. And he says, but when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not be, let the reader understand. And let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, run away to the mountains. We're going to get out of this spot. We're going to go very quickly. There's a sense of urgency here. Uh, then the two times in Mark uh, 14. And then the last time it shows up is Mark 16, 8. What some would say is the last original verse of Mark. So these are the, the disciples at the tomb. Uh, in verse 8, they went out and fled from the tomb for fear, trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. Now, what I didn't tell you was the, uh, if you look at, if you look at, but go back to verse 51 real quick. On the front page of your handout, front side of your handout. And a young man, the only other time the word young man shows up is in Mark 16, 5. And who are we describing in Mark 16, 5? Based on your comparison to other gospels. Say it louder. An angel. Yes, that's right. So see a young man sitting on the right side dressed in a white robe and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, you see Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified, he's, not, he's risen, he's not here. See the place where they lay him. So 14.51 and 16.5, that's the thing that connects them there. And then look at uh, this word for thrown about or clothed. That shows up in 14.51 and 16.5. And then you see the word for ran away. So this shows up in 1450 and 1452 and in 16.8. So Mark is using some language that is very, very similar in this story of the certain young man who runs away and the running away and the interaction at the very end of his gospel. And it leads a lot of people to believe and conclude that the being who is seized, and some of you are like, wait, where are you going? It leads a lot of people to conclude that the being who is seized in 51 and 52 is an angel. And why would we all go, what? Like, because what? Because it's stupid. Yes, I would argue that it is stupid. Where in the Bible do we have any angel who is afraid of anything? Like, nada. What's the actual response when humans see an angel? Yes, I mean, it is just like, whoa, 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 whoa. This is the whole different direction. So I, I would argue the whole context of the scripture would point against a conclusion that this would be an angel. 
even though Mark is using words that connect these two parts of his story. And I would argue that the more significant portion that is being connected is the running away and the consistency of that theme once Jesus is arrested in the garden. Like this is the most common thing the disciples do after Jesus is arrested is to run. Like it's just outright flat disobedience and fear and scare, like just what is going on here. So um, I would actually argue, Dave, that Margie is spot on correct that one of the things that Mark is doing literarily is he is connecting this theme of running away and he's putting a nail into not only the names that you know about, but the names that you don't know, like everybody ran away. So application number one, some of you are like, wait, it's 931, why are we doing applications? Yes, do you see all the books that we hadn't got? I will struggle to finish on time today, guys. Don't worry. Uh, application number one, everyone abandoned Jesus. So what I, what I don't want us to do is I don't want us to let the who and the why distract us from the main point of the text, which is everybody abandoned Jesus. Right? So, ap- so personalization number one, what do we do with that? Well, follow him. N- not the guy who ran away, Jesus. <laughs> Follow Jesus. And when we don't, repent and believe in the gospel. Because we have evidence of this in other gospels, that Jesus forgave the disciples who ran away and then used them mightily to do crazy, ridiculous, amazing things. So this is really good news for us. All right, application number two. Our understanding is limited. And this is where I want to like really pause for several minutes and walk through um, some things we know about the Bible, some things we know about how to approach the Bible, and some things we know about ourselves relative to the Bible and how we approach the Bible. So, uh, Dave, if you could go to the next slide. Uh, Several years ago, we went through Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology. Uh, if you have never been through a systematic theology, I would I'd recommend one. Um, it is not a must-read. Um, this is the only must-read in the universe, so let's make sure we're very clear on that. Uh, I give out a lot of books. I buy a lot of books, but there's only one must-read. Uh, but Grudem is very helpful in describing some characteristics of Scripture, so we'll run through these really quick. So the first is uh, the authority. So this is Scripture's God's Word, the inerrancy. It has no errors. The clarity. It's able to be understood, an emphasis on the word able, and then the necessity. So you you can't know the gospel, maintain a spiritual life, know God's will without the scripture. You can be informed of it, but you can't know it. Like somebody can share the gospel with you, but you know it as evidenced and backed up by the actual scripture itself. So there's a difference between knowing and being exposed to. So let's go to the next slide, Dave. Uh, Grudem has recently come out with a second edition of his systematic theology, and no, we are not going to reteach it for the second edition. I about killed myself going through the first one, so we are going to leave that uh, alone. He did, however, significantly expand and clarify his definition of clarity in the second edition. So this is from the second edition. So the Bible is written in a way such that it's able to be understood. This was in the first, but right understanding requires time, 
effort. Anybody relate to this so far? It's like, yes, it takes a little effort here. The use of ordinary means. So this is like, you think about non-spiritual Holy Spirit stuff at this point. Like we're just, we're going to go work at this. Uh, willingness to obey. I love this, this component. And the help of the Holy Spirit. And our understanding will remain imperfect in this lifetime. Yes, welcome to the human race, right? We, we will not get it all figured out. I think this is wonderfully comforting. He says right up front, we're not going to know it all. I'm grateful for that. I wouldn't be able to remember it or sort it out if I did know it all. Now, the interesting thing is that Jesus, several different times in Mark's gospel, talks about uh, and says, Do you not, have you not read the scriptures? And then he assumes there's an understanding as a result of the reading. So Jesus backs up even for somebody who is not his, that there is an ability to understand some of the scripture just from being exposed to it. So I'd argue that Jesus himself uh, supports the view that understanding is possible. So the question then, if you go to the next slide, is uh, what do we do with hard texts? Are there hard pieces of scripture to understand in the Bible? Yes. If you've read the Bible, virtually any book, just at random, there are pieces you go like, mm, this is challenging. This is really difficult. Um, so what do, we, what do we do with that? All right, so let's go to 2 Peter chapter 3. I know, right? We're out of mark for a second. 2 Peter 3. It's right before the 1st, 2nd, 3rd John Jude Revelation. So. And uh, in verse 14, we'll start there. So Peter is writing, this is the last thing that he wrote that we have documentation of. Um, therefore, beloved, since you are waiting, I'm in verse 14. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him. Pause for just a second. Did Peter and Paul always agree and get along at all times? No, no, there were some rifts, right? So just as our beloved brother Paul, I love that he calls him beloved. <laughs> they have uh, buried the theological hatchet. Uh, also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant unstable twist their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. You, ther you therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people, and lose your own stability. But grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Do you see what Peter said? Some of Paul's stuff is hard to get. Yes. So I love the fact <laughs> that we have one author of Scripture telling another author of Scripture, describing another author of Scripture's words as, like, this is really difficult to understand. This gives me... Some, like, I feel okay, you know. Now, we also know that Peter was in the category of uneducated and untrained men. But at this point, he'd picked up a little more familiarity with some things that were going on. He'd been exposed to Jesus for multiple years. So what do we do with hard texts? I would say the first thing we want to do with hard texts is just maybe acknowledge that they exist. Right? Peter did. It's okay to just say, this is very difficult. Great. The second thing I would encourage us to do uh, comes from, and I, I never had a word for it. And I don't know if you, uh, I like words. This is helpful. Um, 
I don't know if you've ever had a, like, oh, I knew that there was something going on with this theological thing, but now there's actually a word for that. So you guys are familiar with uh, omniscience, so the omniscience of God, that he knows all things, the omnipresence of God, that he uh, is... uh, he is able to be everywhere. It's craziness. And the, uh, what's the third O? Omniscience, omnipresence. Om- omnipotence, right? All power. He could do anything. Which this is the weakest display of God's omnipotence <laughs> in the universe, right? This is, <laughs> I just realized how, and I realized this because directly behind the camera, Amy, is Jay. And him doing this, even though it is shockingly bigger and stronger than me, is still a ridiculously weak attempt at mimicking God's power, right? Uh, there's also something called omnirrationality. So I'm going to put this on the slide real quick so you can see what the word that I'm saying. Omnirrationality. If you go to mirrororthodoxy.com and search on this article, it's a really cool article to read. Um, but rational means there's a reason for doing something, Right? And God, when he acts, is not just acting because there's one or maybe two or three reasons to do something. He's acting because all the reasons point to this is the most perfect, flawless, holy thing that can be done. So when I construct this lesson, I'm trying to include things that are helpful for clarity, things that uh, move the lesson on that are consistent with the larger text, But I don't know every reason imaginable to do or not do a certain action, but God does. So I'm going to read you something real quick. Consider a craftsman making a piece of furniture, say a chair, which is both functional and beautiful. Now the craftsman recognizes that it is both, but he doesn't Maybe he doesn't care about the beauty of the piece, only its functionality. And he makes it so that people can sit in it. And there's good reasons to make the chair that the craftsman doesn't act on. He only acts on some of the reasons that there are to make the chair. God can't be like this craftsman. The reason the craftsman only acts on some of the reasons to make the chair is that he either doesn't know or doesn't care about some of them. But God isn't ignorant of any of the reasons there are to do something since he is omniscient. Let me say that again. God isn't ignorant of any of the reasons there are to do something since he is omniscient. And God fully appreciates and cares about everything that is worth caring about since he is perfect. Were God the one making the chair, he would be making the chair both because of its function and because of its beauty. And for good measure, for any and all other good reasons there are to make the chair. In short, God doesn't just act for some of the good reasons there are to do what he does. He acts for all of them. And omnirrationality is a good name for the fact that God always acts for all the reasons there are to do what he does. And if your brain hurts right now, you're welcome. (laughs) So, I asked you a question earlier about verses 51 and 52 in the narrative of Mark chapter 14. So do we have to have verses 51 and 52 to continue the narrative of what is going on. And I would say the answer is still the same. We, 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 we get it. But there is a reason, or multiple reasons, or myriad reasons, 
why 51 and 52 are there. And God knows them, and he intentionally chose to put them there. And I love the fact that I can't understand all of his ways. This is an encouragement to us. So what do we do with hard texts? I would say trust God's omnirationality. He knows what he is doing in all things and has all the reasons for doing what he is doing. Now, another thing we do with hard text is obey what we know. We have a process in this class to pray, hear, think, talk, share. This is significant in that we practice this over and over and over. So when we come to an easy text, we pray, hear, think, talk, share. When we come to a difficult text, we pray, hear, think, talk, share. It's the same because these are things that are actually commanded in the scripture. And then the fourth one is one uh, that I will encourage. This is gentle encouragement. All right, so gentle encouragement. Number four is remain opinionless. I'll share you a secret. You have, we have permission to not have an opinion. Our current culture demands, requires, expects immediate responses, immediate opinions, immediate assent. And here's what happens, guys. Immediate thought from folks who haven't been thoughtful is not very helpful. Right? So it's okay for us to be opinionless. So, Mitch, if you would, uh, ask me who is in Mark 14, 51, and 52. I don't know. See how easy that was? And none of y'all, just for the record, nobody got up and left and was offended, right? Yes. It's, thank you, Sean. I appreciate that. It's okay. And I will argue this. I read enough Sherlock Holmes when I was a kid that guessing dulls the senses, and it promotes and creates laziness. And in theology, it dulls your theology, and it promotes and it creates inbreeding. Well, it, it must be consistent with this other thing that I know is right, that I have a, it's like, uh, maybe, maybe. Let's just be very careful with this, right? So then what do we do with Mark 14, 51, and 52? Well, let's roll through them, Dave. It's a hard text, yes. And God's omnirational in his decision to put it there. And we should still do what we know. And it's okay to remain opinionless. I read uh, 16 different commentaries this week uh, looking at the uh, different views and perspectives, and I've got them all up here. Uh, and some of them were like, wow, that's really an interesting possibility. And some of them held a pretty tight grip on what they thought their view was. And the reality is, does the text tell us? No. We're still not clear on the who or the why. Okay. <laughs> So let me, let me see if I can close with this. There are questions that we can ask about the Bible that we will not be able to understand here and now. 
and that is good for us. This helps us trust God. It helps us build our faith and not our own guessing and imagination because that is actually a really dangerous thing. So application number two was our understanding is limited. Personalization number two, acknowledge, trust, obey, remain. And we'll be okay. And I am grateful that my salvation and eternal destiny do not depend on the fact of knowing who the certain young man is. Because I don't. <laughs> All I know, and I'll leave you with this, it's probably one of the better summaries. All I know is that was in the Garden of Eden, our nakedness was exposed, and the God who loved and graced us, we deserted. And in this garden of Gethsemane, this young man's nakedness was exposed and he deserted the God who loved and had graced him. So we then have a choice. What will we do? Will we follow Jesus or will we not? And I'll leave you with this. I hope you follow him. He's the only person in the universe worthy of following. Acknowledge, trust, obey, remain. And Lord willing, next week, we'll start with Mark 14, 53. And we will put this strangest, most curious little text in all of Mark uh, in the rearview mirror, just as Mark did, and not reference it again. So, thanks for coming to Sunday School today, guys. You should have your weekly update so go ahead and put your names on that. Any prayer requests you have, if you've got prayer requests online, put those in the comments. And then uh, go and worship this one who is worthy of worship. Thanks for engaging. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast, YouTube channel, and weekly email. You can subscribe to all three of those at OurSundaySchool.com. Grace and peace to you.